We are on the fourth and second to the last part of our church covenant that we will be adopting this year as we move closer to constituting as an independent church, as our own body. Right now, we're still kind of considered a mission. We have two sponsoring or sending churches. One is the Vine Baptist Church in Davis, Oklahoma. The other one is Mountain Ridge Church here in Glendale, Arizona. And then we have many uh, supporting churches and have had many supporting churches along the way since we started in uh, January of 2016. And so uh, this is one of the big steps for us as we continue to follow where God leads. Today we're going to look at the fourth part of our church covenant and continue a little bit today in the book of Ephesians, but we're going to be mainly in a specific chapter of John and then also in a, in a chapter in 2 Corinthians. And so, but there are several scripture passages that, we, that we've kind of linked with this fourth part of our church covenant that I want to share with you as we look at the marks of a church. Last week, we looked at the marks of a church being submitted to one another in the fear of Christ from Ephesians 5.21. And as we do that, we exalt Christ through our humility. To exalt Christ really means to worship. And worship is not about music. Sometimes we attribute worship to music today. But worship is, is much more. As a matter of fact, worship is not even necessarily music. Worship is worship. We attribute music and singing and instruments because it's a way that we animate the, the feelings of our hearts and the thoughts of our mind. And so worship music is the gospel put to music. It's all about Christ. And so if our worship music stops being about Christ, then it's not really worship anymore. And so when we talked about exalting Christ last week, we discovered that the way of the cross The way of Christ is the way of humility. And that word that we looked at in the New Testament, hupotasso, means to voluntarily submit yourself underneath or or beneath the authority of someone else. And so it's not something that's absolute. It's something that's voluntary. It's something that we have to do. So we do that with one another. We humble ourselves before one another. But then also, and especially in the terms of the roles that God gives us in the home and then in the church and in society. We looked at Genesis uh, chapter 1, how the Bible says even in the beginning that God created humans, male and female, and he gave us specific roles and specific gifts that we don't necessarily share with one another, but they're distinct. And we do that in such a way with a spirit of humility. And when we do that, we look more and more like Jesus as we discovered who Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, who although he existed in the form of God, that is, in essence, Jesus was God, and though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That was something that was rightly his, right? The fullness of the deity dwelt in him, as John tells us. But even though he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be seized that was rightfully his, but the Bible says he emptied himself. The word kenosis is used there in Philippians 2, so that's known as the kenotic passage, which talks about Jesus being the one who, for whom and through whom and to him, to whom are all things, rightfully so, yes? But he emptied himself. And if Jesus can empty himself of himself for us, for me, in the incarnation, that is that he 
condescended to such a point from heaven to earth and died on the cross, if he can do that for me, then I can submit myself to the authority of others, to serve others. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, we discovered last week, and showed that humility to them as an example that they would follow in his steps, that we would follow in his steps with the same humility. So that's what we looked at last week, that we would magnify Christ, that we would exalt Christ by humbling ourselves in fulfilling our God-given roles of biblical manhood, womanhood, and childhood as the Holy Spirit empowers us. So we give one another grace to learn, to try to learn the things that are pleasing to Christ, but to be moving forward in transformation all the same. Today, we're looking at the fourth part, specific marks of the church, faithful witnesses and bold ambassadors. What does it mean to be a faithful witness and a bold ambassador? So this is the fourth, fourth part of our covenant. To represent Christ as faithful witnesses to the life-changing power of the gospel and bold ambassadors of his kingdom in expectation of his return. So again today, what I'm going to do in the message is I'm just going to break that statement down into two or three parts. And we're going to learn, we're going to discover through our interaction with Scripture, what does it look like to be a faithful witness? Has God given us a blueprint? Has He given us a plan on what it looks like to be a faithful witness? So I hope that you would engage in His Word. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Follow along in your own copy of the Scriptures. Several different passages that go along with this that you're going to see attached to our, this part of our church covenant. One is Romans 6, 1 through 14. We're not going to, that's not going to be one of our passages to study, but I want to give you that text If you have a copy of our church covenant, you'll see it as one of the addresses underneath that fourth point. Romans 6, 1 through 14, where the Apostle Paul talks about that that now that we are covered in grace, he anticipates a question. And he does this diatribe in the the beginning of the book of Romans where he says, he, he makes these truth statements and then he anticipates questions that we might have. And one of the ones in Romans chapter 6, he says, since since grace abounds all the more. He anticipates someone asking, well, shouldn't we just continue in sin so that grace would increase? If, we, if the more we've sinned, if the more humanity sins, the more God pours upon grace, shouldn't we just sin more so that grace may increase? And he says in the emphatic, in the Greek emphatic, he says meganoita, which is a, a very nice way of saying where I'm from in the South, heck no. Okay, it's a very emphatic and, he's, and it's translated probably in your Bible, may it never be. May it never be. No. And then he goes on in verses 1 through 14 to say, don't you know, brothers, don't you know, brethren, that, that those of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ's death? And that even as Christ was buried, so we, our old lives have been buried. And just as he was raised to eternal life, so we are now new creatures And that we are no longer to be controlled by sin. We are no longer to present our bodies over to sin as instruments to be used by sin. But instead, we're to present our our bodies as instruments to righteousness. So you're a new creature. And so now that we, we are to represent Christ in the world as faithful witnesses, there's a change that has happened in us. And so we're different from the people that are around us. We'll get into that more later. And then also Galatians 2.20. Paul says, for I have been crucified with Christ. And it's now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives 
in me, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so we see a transition. Paul says, look, there's something that's happened in my life. I have been crucified with Christ. And so there's a, there's a different me walking around the planet now. Something is, different has happened. And then also in Titus 2, verses 1 through 15, we're told how to behave as new believers. But today we're going to specifically look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, and, and also uh, John chapter 9. So we're going to start in John chapter 9 as we look at what it means to be a faithful witness. So if you'll turn in your Bible to John chapter 9, you may be familiar with this story. This is such an interesting story to me because it's, it's, very, it's very simple, the response of this man who has been healed by Jesus. And I want you to see the simplicity of his witness. Because we're going to learn by looking at this story, we're going to learn what it means to be a faithful witness. I'm going to share four things with you that we get from this passage. There may be more here, but we're just going to look at these four. So follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. I'm going to read verses 1 through 38. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who has sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed, and he came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Therefore, they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. 
But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And they put him out. Jesus heard that they put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What a powerful story. There's so much here, so much. But I want to look at four things that we notice here of what it means to be a faithful witness. This man wasn't even a Christian yet. He wasn't even born again yet. He was simply made to see. And he's giving testimony of what Jesus has done in his life. And notice how simple it is. First of all, his testimony never changes. He never embellishes. He never thinks that he has to ramp this thing up for it to be believable or anything like that. First thing we know and we notice is that being a faithful witness, as in the case of this blind man, means testifying about how Jesus found you. Testifying about how Jesus found you. How did Jesus find you? This is what this man says. In, in verse 9, <clears throat> I want you to notice what's going on here. All these different people are giving uh, different testimonies. People are asking the neighbors. People, the, the, the neighbors are talking about him, that he was a beggar. Is this not the same guy? He looks the same as the guy who used to beg. Is he not the one who used to sit and beg, verse 8 says? Others were saying, listen, this is he. He's the guy. I recognize him. I remember what he looked like. Others saying, no, 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 no. He just looks, this is his doppelganger, okay? He looks just like him. The other day, we were uh, at, in, in Chandler. I was shopping with, with the girls, and we went to eat some pizza. We were at the New York Pizza Department. Anybody ever been there? Really good pizza. Love it. And we're sitting there eating, and this guy walks in really tall, and, and, and I'm going, this guy... Who is he? He's like somebody famous. And then it clicked. Drew Bledsoe, former, former quarterback for the Patriots and Dallas Cowboys. I was like, this is Drew Bledsoe. 
it's him. And then he had two young men with him that were both really tall. One of them had an ASU hat on. I'm going, maybe that's his son. Maybe he plays football for ASU. So I'm I'm on Google. I'm looking this up on Hannah's phone. She's, you know, she's looking it up. And I'm going, that's Drew Bledsoe. She's like, who's Drew Bledsoe? I told her, I said, before Tom Brady. Okay, that was hard to imagine. There was this guy named Drew Bledsoe. And and uh, so, so I don't know if he catches me looking at him, but I'm like looking at him, trying to get him to turn around. I was like, this has got to be Drew Bledsoe. And then I got a closer look. It, it wasn't Drew Bledsoe. But this guy could have been his body double. I'm telling you. This is what people, like, he's not the guy. He, he looks like him, but it's not him. Okay, don't, don't go all crazy on us. And what does he keep saying? He says, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Now, sometimes what we're, what, we're, what we're tempted to do and what we do many times is whenever we become Christians and we feel like there's this, there's this expectation to paint a picture, a false picture of our identity, and we don't talk about who we were when Jesus found us. And what we do is we cripple the, tes- the testimony that God has specifically given to us. And we can learn a lot from Paul because Paul's very clear in the New Testament when he talks about over and over and over who he is at his core. To me, the very least of all the saints, he says, this grace was given. Why? He says, so that God might show his, his love and the depths of his mercy. If he, can, if he can use someone, if he can save someone like me. Well, well, what do you mean like you? Let me tell you where I came from. Let me tell you who I was. Let me tell you about my wicked heart. Being a faithful witness means testifying about how Jesus found you, about your past. Being honest. Never does this man run away from who he was. He even goes into the presence of the most legalistic people on the planet, at least in his world, and said, I'm the guy, I'm the beggar who used to step over to worship in the temple every day. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who was blind my entire life who you said it must have been something that he did or his parents did, so we're just going to leave him alone. Don't minister to him. He's, the righteous, he, he's rightly receiving God's condemnation. Don't get in the middle of that. I'm that guy. Testify about how Jesus found you. Secondly, telling the truth about your conversion. Being a faithful witness means telling the truth about your conversion. Look at verse 15. We know how Jesus healed him, how he gave him sight. But notice the consistency of how much he tells the truth. He says, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. He applied clay to my eyes, I washed, and I see. That sounds silly, doesn't it? That doesn't make any sense. You're telling me that this guy spit in the dirt, made clay, wiped your face with it, and told you to go wash it off, and now you see? I'm sure it might, we might think, you know what, this testimony of mine, no one's going to believe. It's ridiculous. Maybe I should tweak it a little bit so that it's a little more believable. Maybe there's something about the gospel that's just simply unbelievable to an unbelieving world. And if we can just 
modernize it, if we can just catch it up to the times, then it'll be palatable for people. Then they'll be able to receive it. But that's not what being a faithful witness according to the word of God is. Being a faithful witness is, is saying, look, I know it sounds crazy, but this is what happened. God sent his son from heaven. He took on flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He went to the cross and he died for my sins. And because he died on the cross for my sins in my place, his shed blood has made me clean and has saved me and given me salvation. And so now I have a future. Now I have life eternal. Well, that sounds silly, but it's the truth. The truth. Tell the truth. Paul says in his letter, first letter to the Corinthian church, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the Jew, it's a scandal. It's a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. Tell the truth. Keep it simple. Third thing, giving Christ the glory for your salvation. He never changes this part of his testimony. Look at verse uh, 25. They ask him, because they say, look, we're going to give you a second chance. This time, would you give glory to God for what happened? Okay, give glory to God. This man's a sinner. He, he's doing work on the Sabbath day. We, we know he's out of God's will, this man named Jesus from Nazareth. So this time, give glory to God, okay? And this man says this, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. He, he's just saying, look, I don't know enough about this guy. I'm not a theologian. I haven't been following him around like these other guys, Peter and James and John. I, I don't know him like they do. I don't know if he's a sinner. But this is what I do know. I do know that whereas I was blind, now I see. It's so simple, isn't it, his testimony? And he's just honest. He's like, you know what? I don't know these things, but I know this. I'm sure of this. Sometimes we think that being faithful witnesses means that we have to be well-versed in theology and we have to foresee all of the ways that a conversation can go. Well, what if they ask me about, you know, the age of the earth? Or what if they ask me about where Cain got his wife? Or what if they ask me about, you know, this or that or whatever? So I'm just gonna stay away from those conversations. This guy's just honest. We have to learn to just be honest and say, you know what, I don't know the answers to those questions. I'll try to find out. But I am sure of this, I belong to him. He died in my place. And he's changed my life. Giving Christ the glory for our salvation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We know the song. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's that simple. This is who I was. This is who I am because of Jesus. And then finally, faithful, being a faithful witness means being consistent under pressure. Being consistent under pressure. Look at verse 27. They ask him again in verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? It's the same thing that they're doing with Jesus whenever they're following him around and they're saying, give us a sign. He's like, I think I've kind of done that already. <laughs> I've given you lots. 
Well, give us a sign that you are the Son of God. Give us a sign that you are the Messiah. And he ends up saying to them, no, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah, which many believe that it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's, he's talking about what's going to happen to him and relating it to Jonah being swallowed by the great fish and then being spewed out and, and all that. It could also mean that he's saying no sign will be given except the preaching of the word because that's actually what Jonah does when he goes to Nineveh in the Old Testament. He gives them the shortest sermon known to man. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. See you guys later. That's it. Either way, both are consistent, I believe, with the word of God. But they're asking Jesus all these questions. They ask this guy. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. He doesn't change his story. He, he doesn't adapt it to their demands. Did you notice that? He just says, I already told you. I already gave you my testimony. I already told you what happened, and you didn't listen. But he never changes his story. He's faithful as a witness. And he's not even a believer yet. He hasn't even been confronted with the person and work of Christ until later on in the story. Faithful witnesses. Bold ambassadors. We're to represent Christ as faithful witnesses to the life-changing power of the gospel and we're to represent Christ as bold ambassadors of his kingdom. Bold ambassadors of his kingdom. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As we look at this passage that I read partially from just a while ago, starting in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> now, this is not John writing, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, he says, from now on we recognize no man, no person, according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things, he writes in verse 18, are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, we're going to look at four things from this passage. What does it mean to be a bold ambassador of Christ's kingdom? First of all, we see that it means no longer living for yourself. As ambassadors, 
We no longer live for ourselves, but we, we li- and we no longer live for this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, the worldly kingdom, or our own kingdom within it. We now exist, we now live for His kingdom. And so, we no longer live for ourselves. We see that in verse 14 through 15. We are controlled by the love of Christ. He died for all. Why? That they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So everything changes in the life of a Christian when we come to faith. Our life changes in the sense that we no longer live for ourselves. Now, this is interesting to note because there, there are some Christian churches, Christian individuals, Christian pastors, teachers, leaders, who will try to adapt the message of the Bible and the message of the gospel to a, a kind of self-centered mentality that, that's, that's very evident in humanity. That is that, <clears throat> that is that Jesus actually wants to be part of your plan, okay? That he wants to support you in your efforts to be the best person that you can be. He wants to come and support your dreams and your aspirations and your plans and things like that. And it's, it's a very deceiving message because it's contrary to the gospel. The gospel says that once God comes in and changes our life through the power of Christ, then we actually submit ourselves to his authority and we give up. We give up all the things that we so treasure, our will, our desires, our plans, our wants, all the things that we treasure. Uh, there, was a, there was a very wealthy man who met Jesus and he had everything the world could offer except he knew the limitations of the world. He, he knew he could own everything. He knew he could experience every thrill the world had to offer, but he knew. Every time he, every time he attended a funeral of a family member, every time he, he opened the newspaper, it, it was staring him in the face, and that was the fact that he was not going to live forever to enjoy all of his stuff. There's one missing piece. And he hears about this person from Nazareth who was going around and telling people they could live eternally if they would put their faith and trust in him, that he was the son of God. And this rich man found and sought out Jesus and said, I want what you got. And Jesus said, obey the commandments. He said, done it, okay? Take everything that you own, sell it, take the money, give it to the poor, and then come follow me and you can be my disciple. And the Bible says that the man went away grieved because he owned much. He didn't, he didn't want to lose anything in order to follow Christ. He didn't want to give up living for himself. And that was the deal breaker. And if Jesus is going to say this is the deal breaker, then we have to as well. We have to share that message. We as bold ambassadors, not only do we have to no longer live for ourselves, but the message that we share to people is that, is that if you want to be saved, you must no longer live for yourself. You have to give that up. It's not Jesus, it's, it's not Jesus plus all of your selfishness. It's Jesus. Choose Him over everything else. So no longer living for yourself. Secondly, it's no longer recognizing people 
according to the flesh. It's no longer seeing people, uh, or, or it's, it's now seeing people in a different light than you used to. This is very difficult for us as well. In verse 16, he says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Why does he say that? Why does he say that now, no longer are we different, but we don't recognize other people in the same way? Because he's talking about this idea of being ambassadors. There is a new kingdom that is broken into history. And now Jesus, in his, in his presence, as he's walking the earth and he is performing miracles, he is declaring that there is an inbreaking of, a new king, of God's kingdom in history. And now the light has shone in the darkness, as John says in John chapter 1, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Now, again, you have this stark contrast within light and darkness that you see all the way back in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. Jesus is the light of the world, so he's coming in and he's bringing in his kingdom, and now he brings a sharp distinction between what is light and what is darkness in such a way that as he's going out through his ministry, demon-possessed people are crying out. Demons are running from him. Why? Because they are darkness. And the enemy is running from Christ. So there's this new kingdom. Therefore, there's a sharp distinction between light and darkness. There are two kingdoms. We like to think of people as being just on the fence. Think of our friends, our neighbors, our family members who are not believers. That's okay. They're somewhere in the middle. They're not evil people. They're not murderers or child abusers or anything like that. They're just normal people. They're probably going to be okay. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus says we no longer recognize people according to the flesh, but now we recognize them according to what kingdom they belong to, what kingdom they're enslaved to. And we have to be ambassadors with that knowledge that we represent the kingdom of light. And that there are those all around us who belong to the kingdom of darkness. We don't like to think about that. And we also don't like to judge people that way. But it's true. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, we read this just a week or two ago. Where the Apostle Paul talks to members of Christ's body. He describes all the activities of those living in the kingdom of darkness. And in verse 7, he says, Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness... Notice, he doesn't say you were formerly in darkness. He says you, Christian, who've been saved by grace through faith, were formerly darkness. And now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In Ephesians 5, 16, moving on down. In verse 15, he says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Verse 16, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. The very days that we live in are dark, he says. You like to get up in the morning and say, well, what kind of day is this going to be? Eh, it could be light, could be dark. Nope, until Jesus comes again, it's going to be dark. Some maybe not as dark as others. But we are living in darkness on this earth until he comes again. And as ambassadors of his kingdom, we are light and we are to shine the light. Third point. Bold ambassadors means taking ownership or responsibility of a special assignment. When you think of ambassadors, we, uh, we were playing a game the other night in our house and uh, the word was a game where you pass around a card or a phone and it has a, a word on there and everybody's supposed to 
know where you're at. And then there's one person in the group who's a spy, and they have to guess. They have to guess where everybody is. And the word on there was the word embassy, embassy. And uh, it's kind of like the word cemetery, right? When kids are young, they think their dad, who's a preacher, went to cemetery instead of seminary. Sometimes he can feel that way, right? <laughs> but this word embassy, and, and I'm thinking everybody knows what this is, and, and we're giving hints and stuff, and somebody's talking about people wearing black robes and having gavels in their hand, and I'm going, what? And then other people are talking about things, like, you know, and I'm going, I don't think we all know what an embassy is. And come to find out, several people in the group were like, no, oh, I thought it was like a courthouse, like a place. Nope, that's, that's not an embassy. So we kind of had a discussion on what an embassy was and what you would find there. You would find soldiers there. You would find a flag there of the, of the country. You would find people, you know, working there who represent a different country than the one that they, they live in and things like that. And, and people go there to seek asylum and to get visas and all these other things. We need to have in our mind, this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to envision here is he's convincing us that we are representatives of a different kingdom here on earth. That we represent someone else. Someone else's authority. Our citizenship, Peter even says, our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to someone else. We have a different nationality because we've been born again. And we have to take ownership and responsibility of a special assignment, a special ministry, and that is the ministry of reconciliation. There's nothing better. There's no greater responsibility or assignment than to tell people that though they live in sin and are separated from God because of their sin, God has provided reconciliation for them through Christ. God has done something for you. He's given his one and only son for you. We get to be the bearers of that good news. And so Paul says here, all things um, are from God, verse 18. This is back in 2 Corinthians 5. All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That is, this is how we, we gained our citizenship through Christ and, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The us there is those who are saved, the saints, those who are born again. Not just apostles, not just pastors, not just evangelists, all of us. He gave it to us. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, verse 19 says, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is, this is what God has done in the gospel. When Jesus was ministering, when he went to the cross, this is what God was doing. He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. It's ours. Isn't that awesome? That's our privilege. That's our responsibility. And as ambassadors, we have to take ownership of that. In Ephesians 3, we looked at this several weeks ago, we noticed that the manifold wisdom of God has been made through whom? Do you remember? Paul says in verse 8 of Ephesians 3, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, talking about the Old Testament, who created all things. Listen to this in verse 10. In order that the manifold, that is the many-sided wisdom of God, might now be made known through the church, you and me, to the rulers and authorities 
in heavenly places. You get that? That is, we have the knowledge of, of something in the gospel, the good news, the message of reconciliation that angels long to know about. We have that knowledge. He's given us that ministry. So being bold ambassadors means taking ownership of that special assignment, that responsibility. And then finally, it, it means becoming a beggar for Christ. You know the first story we looked at? Blind man begging at the temple door, begging in the street, goes from being a beggar to being healed, now advocating for himself. But as believers, when we're transformed and we're transmitted into Christ's kingdom, we become ambassadors and now our ministry is to become beggars. What are we begging for? Who are we begging to? Look at what he says in verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I, I meet people all the time who, who may be Christians struggling with this, and I, and I get the struggle, or people who aren't believers who say, I, I could never believe because of this reason, who say there are so many people on the planet who, who die and never hear the gospel. That's not fair. That God would not give them the opportunity to, to believe upon Jesus for salvation. How could he create people who never hear the gospel? Do you see what the Bible says here? He hasn't allowed that. He's given birth to the church. That's our job. That's who we are. Everybody who's ever heard the gospel, we are ambassadors whose ministry it is. Verse 20 says, God is entreating the world through us. He, he's, not, he's not appearing in the bark of a tree to some remote villager across the world. He's, he's give, how many Bibles do you own? How many dozens of Bibles do we have scattered across our house? I mean, we could, we could beat this horse to death all day long, right? And I don't want to, 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 to beat us down as Christians, but we need to own the responsibility. We need to understand that, that God is doing something in the world through you and through me. That's how people are going to be saved. That's how people are going to, to be changed and transformed. It's if we are willing to become beggars. Beggars. Undignified beggars. Hungry. Starving. Sometimes unclothed, unsheltered beggars. That's one of the difficulties with being blessed so greatly as, a, as believers and as a church, as churches in the country and in the time that we live in, is that we don't want to lose a sense of discomfort when it comes to ministry. Sometimes we don't want to become beggars for Christ. But with the incarnation and the crucifixion in view, we would have the right motivation. The same motivation we would have, as we looked at last week, how can I submit to the authority of another person? How can I subject myself to someone else in the fear of Christ? In full view, an understanding of what Jesus did for me, I can do that by His power, by the Holy Spirit. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. The same way, how can we embrace 
this ministry of reconciliation with the incarnation and crucifixion in view. When we see what Jesus did, when we consider what Jesus has done for us on a regular basis, we can be beggars. We can embrace being a bold ambassador. And then finally, and we'll close with this, in expectation of his return. I don't think it's on there. We got umbrellas though, just in case. The last part of that is in expectation of his return. We represent him in the world in expectation of his return in these two ways. In Matthew 25, 13, Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. In Romans 13, 11, the Apostle Paul writes, And do these things knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now Jesus says, You don't know the day, you don't know the hour of my return. That's what he says. People have fallen on their face in in humiliation, uh, trying to say, well, in this year, it's going to happen. On this day. Remember 2012? Eight years ago, right? But Paul says, and he encourages the church in Romans 13, 11, he says, you don't know the day or the hour, but the hour has come. That is the time of expectation has come that we as believers are to live in expectation of his return because he is coming. He is coming. And it's always nearer than it ever has been before. So it has a direct impact on the way we live. In 2 Peter 3, 9 through 13, Peter says the, that, that, that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And, and a thousand years one day. He's not slow about his promise, but is patient. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Therefore, we should live in a certain way to anticipate his coming. I hope that as we continue to grow as a church and be transformed as a church body, that we will commit to one another to represent Christ in the world as faithful witnesses to the life-changing power of the gospel and bold ambassadors of his kingdom in expectation of his return. Let's pray.